0: Well, good morning. It is good to be with you again. I do count it a privilege get to, to get to be here with you and not only just to be with you but to spend uh, three consecutive Sunday mornings with the church. Sometimes when you just um, are filling in as a guest preacher, you get to drive by and drive out, but there is something sweet about being able to sing with you um, consecutive weeks in a row and to hear the word read and to hear. Uh, the prayers that are offered up, and so thank you, and know that uh, you have my prayers and our family as well as Emmanuel Baptist Church where we attend, and again, we are thankful for your partnership. So if you still have your Bibles open, would you look down there to Acts chapter 6, that is where we're going to be spending our time this morning, the portion of scripture that was just read, and with God's words open before us, let's ask him for his aid and for his help. God and our Father, it is with great relief and great delight that we hear as your word was just read that it is your steadfast love that never ceases, that it is uh, your very mercy that does not run out, dry up, or come to an end, and that as we have woken this morning, whatever condition we might feel ourselves to be in or whatever circumstances that have awaited us, Lord, the one constant in all of that is that your faithfulness upholds us, and that it is your mercy that greets us. And as we come to your word this morning, we rejoice to hear that what is before us is a message of mercy, of what you have done in Christ. The very fact that we are gathered here this morning on your day, the Lord's day, remembering and rejoicing in you, the risen Christ. Lord, in all of this, we come to you by faith with your word before us, and we are confident as you, our faithful heavenly Father, a desire to provide for your children. Lord, would you provide for us? Would you nourish, nourish us, correct us, teach us, and strengthen your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, in calm seas and in blue skies, passengers rarely think about the engineering or the stability of the particular vessel that they might be found in. Typically, it's only when the horizon starts to shift a bit and the waves begin to roll over the bow of the ship that you begin to think about how well was this ship designed, how much thought went into how it was crafted, created, and built. It's only in those moments that you start to think about the trustworthiness of whatever vessel you might find yourself to be in. I've thought about this a few times, and on a very brief investigation, discovered, thankfully, that engineers and shipbuilders don't simply build a ship to endure smooth waters. They are designed and built for waves, monstrous waves. In fact, the the massive ocean liners and military ships that crisscross our oceans have holes that are designed to endure these extreme waves, the 60 to even 90-foot waves that can be out in the middle of the ocean. These vessels, then, are designed for not smooth seas, but stormy by their very purpose and intention. I bring that up because I want to ask a related question. What about Christianity? can Christianity endure the storms? Can it survive? And can the followers of Christ, when they are beaten against, sometimes quite literally, falsely accused, maligned, imprisoned, what will happen to the spread of the gospel then? What effect will those waves have upon God's church? Thankfully, the Primary or one of the primary themes here in the book of Acts is devoted to answering that very question. As you skim through this book, or perhaps you've read it recently, one of the themes that that jumps out at you is that opposition does not mean defeat. Again and again in the book of Acts, what we find is that God's word, we're told, continues to grow and bear fruit, and then it simultaneously Persecution, suffering, and setback are pressed back in upon these same believers. Just by way of reminder, as your Bibles are there before you, you can even glance back at Acts chapter 4. There in verse 3, we read that Peter and John, they're thrown in jail. But in the very next verse, Luke records, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Then in verse uh, 18 of chapter 5, another summary statement. We're told the apostles there are arrested, that they're thrown into prison. But what happens in verse 19? But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. As if we're not catching thoroughly the theme of what's recorded here, verse 40 of chapter 5. Again, the apostles are beaten, forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus. And what do we read there in verse 41? Verse 41. It says that they rejoiced in their suffering and they continued in the temple and from house to house teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. What we see is that the word of God cannot be bound. And now, all this is well and good, but what about a different scenario? What about conflict within the church? It seems that Luke has been showing that it does not matter what happens outside as the world presses in to God's church, but here in chapter 6, a little different wrinkle unfolds as we find that there is actually conflict among the disciples. Can the church of God grow, and can the word of God increase amidst complaints, apparent neglect, and potential division? we're meant to read acts chapter 6 in that light illuminated by that narration so here's the big idea of what i want us to see as the main theme here in acts chapter 6 that the word of god continues to increase when the church of god is organized according to the mind of god the word of god will continue to grow and increase when god's church Is organized by God's design and what we see here in Acts chapter 6 essentially is that this narrative of that there's a complaint that rises within the church then we see this concern of the Apostles and then lastly we're given this statement of the continued increase of the word so let's look at the complaint the concern And then a continued increase. Verse 1 gives us this complaint very matter-of-factly. It says, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I think it's helpful to note... Luke records and anchors this account within this context of in those days. This is our clue to read Acts chapter 6 in unison with the end of chapter 5. And what do we find there at the end of Acts chapter 5? We find that the apostles are continuing to faithfully teach and preach that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. That he is the one that's been promised by God, that he has been sent empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out the very promise that God gave to Abram, that he sustained through the time of the judges, that they, for, they longed for in the, in the time of the kings, that the prophets foretold of. And here's this Christ. He is the one, Jesus. They continued to teach and to preach. In those days, that's what was happening. Now, why does Luke say that? Why is this helpful for us to read Acts chapter 6? Well, because there's really a number of principles that we need to lay hold of, as we the hearers and the readers of this account, if we're going to really get at the real issue of what's underneath Acts chapter 6. Jesus Christ is being faithfully proclaimed and taught in those days, a complaint arose. There's a couple of principles that we need to be clear on if we're going to get at the main intent of what Luke records here in Acts 6. The first principle is this. Faithful preaching bears fruit. The apostles are doing exactly what Christ commissioned them to do in Acts 1.8. They are testifying of the Christ. They are boldly proclaiming him, teaching and preaching all about Him, surrounding Jerusalem. They're testifying that all of the Old Testament Scriptures, they, in fact, point to Christ, who is the cornerstone, David's greater son, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. And what we see is that that sort of faithful preaching does something. It actually accomplishes God's holy purposes. When men and women begin to speak of Christ for who he is as the Bible reveals him to be and compels people to trust in him, that does something because it is God's word. The same word that spoke creation into existence is that same word that the apostles were speaking forth. This is God's message to us. This is who he is. This is who his son is. This is who you are. And when that happens, it creates fruit. We're reminded of this in Isaiah 55 as the prophet Isaiah testifies that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall be my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it forth. Faithful preaching of God's word bears fruit, just as God has promised. So Christ would build his church and we should not be surprised when the faithful preaching of his word adds to his church. This is what happens. It's principle number one. Principle number two is that fruitfulness actually produces more work. Faithful preaching produces fruit. Principle two, fruitfulness produces more work. Anyone who's ever planted a garden, uh, if you've ever raised any animals, you know that fruitfulness is going to mean more work. Think about it. One apple on the center of your kitchen table, pretty manageable. An orchard full of apple trees requires a bit more work. Fruitfulness demands more work. I bring this up because I think we would do well to remember that gospel preaching not only produces more disciples, but what oftentimes appear to be more problems. That's the very nature of fruitfulness. Why is that? Well, because when the plow of the gospel breaks up hard and stony hearts, What is unearthed is all sorts of idols that now must be dealt with as they are brought into the light, confessed, repented of, worked through, acknowledged, forsaken. That's what the gospel does. It was always there, but now the gospel brings it to the surface. You see it. I see it. Discipleship results in more work. This sort of gospel fruitfulness means more Biblical counseling. It means more one-to-one discipleship and Bible reading. It means more intentionality on the time that we spend with one another, opening up the scriptures and reminding ourselves of what God has declared. Biblical preaching results in biblical work. So brothers and sisters, I say this to remind you that we should not be surprised when we find that faithful preaching just produces more work within our midst. I call this the simple principle of where there's life there's mess. <laughs> you know what I mean then? I say this because there's actually a proverb that's given to us it's Proverbs 14:4 4. where there are no oxen the manger is clean but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. Meaning this, if you invite me over to your farm and you show off your barn how clean it is that I could eat off of the floor of it and look how clean this manger is, there's not one fly, there is not one concern that you could have here, it is spotless. And then I go look in your granaries and I say, yeah, that's what I thought, they're empty. Because that ox, though it makes a great mess, it is the very means by which it's gonna bring the fruitfulness in of your labors. Where there's life, There's mess. So we should not be surprised that when the faithful preaching of God's word yields a fruitfulness, that as it does here in Acts 6, challenges our very unity. A fruitfulness that challenges our very unity. What you had here in Jerusalem was Greek-speaking Jews, and Hebrew-speaking Jews. That meant there was linguistic differences. There was cultural differences. That meant that not everybody had the same opinions about how things should be worked out in the world. That meant that there was apparent, real or not, perceived differences in how people are being treated. That when gospel preaching bears gospel fruit, there will inevitably be challenges to our gospel unity. Because when the gospel, not something else, when the gospel is the gravitational pull, it gathers people from every ethnicity, from different cultures, from different political convictions, And these people, with varying differences, are united around this one message, this one risen Christ, this one truth of who he is. That is the basis of their spiritual unity. If we begin preaching a message that says Christianity is American, it is white, and it is according to our traditions, and it is according to my particular ecu social economical class or say that it is Korean or that it is Russian or we gather around hobbies or sports and say that's what we're about you can find unity because you have agreement on your hobbies or your language or your traditions or the color of your skin but that's not gospel unity but the gospel goes into every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And so it gathers a people from those varying backgrounds and said, you are now unified around Christ. And we say amen to that. And then we say, well, that's messy. (laughs) Faithful preaching produces work. And make no mistake, this complaint arises as a result of gospel growth pains. The abundance of fruit produces greater needs, which leads to this particular complaint. The church at Jerusalem, it does serve as a good reminder to us that complaints, neglected widows even, overlooked needs, these problems, they arise alongside the good seed of God's word that is being sowed. There's the complaint. Well, let's look at verses 2 to 6 because that unfolds the very concern of the apostles here. Says in the twelve, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, "It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good, good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint over this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen." a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. What we have here is really the embryonic form of the congregational church, gathering together in their commitment to the gospel, and to care for one another. Notice that the apostles don't just make unilateral decision, this is what we're doing. Nor is it just a populist rule of the people rising up saying, this is what we're doing. What we see here is this one of several examples of Christ-appointed ministers leading the full number of disciples towards a faithful response. And just what is the concern of these apostles? Well, first of all, I think we need to see that it's a concern that's held in tension, if you will. Step back for a moment and just appreciate the challenge that is before the church here. There's a strong pull at this very moment to pit unity, to pit, excuse me, to pit doctrine against unity. Look at what happens here. You can imagine them saying, look, if we really value the unity of the church, this Hellenist Hebrew thing, we just got to meet this need. Guys, we got to work longer. got to stay up later. We need to leave some things aside. We need to reorganize our org structure. We need to give up some certain things. We need to be a unified people. Or you can imagine them saying, you know what? Teaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ is also really important, so maybe the widows will just figure it out themselves. Quite often, I think churches are tempted to choose a side. Are you a doctrine and preaching church? Are you a loving and serving church? What are you guys about? Well, why not both? Why not both? And this is the tension that the apostles were concerned to keep in place. And notice how this tension plays out. On one hand, they are concerned for the priority of God's word. Notice that the apostles' reasoning is built upon this phrase in verse 2 that says, it is not right. Not right according to whom? And by what standard? What do you mean it's not right to leave the word to serve tables? Are these just a bunch of Bookish men who are allergic to heavy lifting and prefer commentaries to real people? I don't think so. No, they are convinced it would not be right because to abandon preaching they know would be a dereliction of duty for Christ himself has charged them to this very task. God has always seen fit to direct and to guide and to guard and to build and lead his church through the ministry of his word. And these apostles, they, they stand in that same stream. It would not be right, because Christ himself has ordained that this is how his church is to be led. Luke, who has written Acts, wrote volume one, which is the gospel of Christ according to Luke. And what Luke records at the end in, in chapter 24, that the risen Christ Speaking to these same men, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then he looks at them and says, You are witnesses to these things. And that's why in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke again records to these same men, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When Peter is freed from prison in Acts chapter 5, verse 20, the angels' instruction to him are, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. These apostles say it would not be right to give that up because that's the post that we've been told to hold. We've been given instruction, hold this line they are rightly concerned for the priority of the ministry of the word. Now, if you find yourself nodding and saying amen to this preaching ministry of the word but stick around for the second half here because the apostles were equally convinced of the necessity of caring for the practical needs of the church. Because on the other hand, they are concerned for these widows and the need that is reflected there. Lest we forget they would have known that to neglect these widows was a clear disobedience to God's word. These men would have known that Deuteronomy 10 and 14 and 16 all bound them to take seriously the widows among them, and they had the responsibility to provide for those who had no means to do so. This was not just some social pressure to be nice to people. This is actually God's design that says, take care of your people. And the apostles would have known this. Meaning, when they heard of this complaint within their numbers, they could have looked at the growing list, excuse me, they could not have looked at the growing list of needs within the congregation. They could not shrug their shoulders and just say, not my problem. They didn't have that option. The concern of the apostles was not an either or. It was not, are we going to give priority to the ministry of the word, or are we going to take care of the needs among us? They are convinced that both must be in place. That is what I mean by this concern was held in tension, because they pull against each other. If you're going to be faithful to one, you must also be faithful to the other. But the two very often fight against each other just in the amount of days and hours and time and resources that are given. And here is the tension that ought to be felt by every faithful church serious about living out their mission in the world. The preaching of the word of God, the ministry of the word, must be considered a non-negotiable. And the way that we love one another ought to be a very testimony that we are Christ's disciples. The concern of the apostles is not only held in tension, the concern of the apostles, notice it leads to a solution. The solution could be summed up in two words here. Delegation and devotion. Instead of pitting the ministry of the word against the care for the widows, the apostles put forward a strategy to adopt this strategy of let's divide and conquer. The solution involves a delegation The full number of the disciples is instructed to look around at one another and find for themselves seven men of exemplary character. The language there is that men who are of good good repute, and that's going to be evidenced by the Holy Spirit's work within them in regards to conversion, ongoing sanctification. You could think through all the various ministry of the Holy Spirit and say, Do I see evidence of that in this man? Those with a proven track record of wisdom. Look around, who fits the bill? Look around, see who God has placed in your midst. Notice something here, something that we might do differently in our own natural inclination. Notice that the job description given here is not for the accomplished businessmen who have a background in overseeing logistics companies with a strong track record of intermodal shipping and distribution, multi-ethnic training, because it's really what we need here, logistics, distribution, and multi-ethnic training. Anybody do that for a living? (laughs) But that's what we would do so often, isn't it? But notice what God's word does. God's word seems to emphasize character over competency. Character? What's the job description to take care of these Greek speaking widows? Well, let's find men of good character. Because men of good character will care about what God cares about, and they will find a way to put a plan into place that honors God, it is in line with God's word, not just pragmatic solutions. Men of character, not just competency. Because giftedness is only as good as godliness. Has not recent trends within the evangelical American church proven that out? We feign over those who are gifted. Godliness, we've got other men on staff for that. Not so. The solution involved delegation, but the solution also involved devotion. Devotion to prayer and the word. So having ensured that the needs of these widows are met by these seven men, The apostles then say we will remain at our post and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the emphasis upon the word, it's actually really a central theme that runs throughout these just seven verses in Acts. Look back at your Bible. It's mentioned in verse two. It shows up again in verse four. And then the concluding verse in verse seven. The Word. The Word. The Word. The Word. Now, I recognize if you're not a Christian, this emphasis upon the Word, it probably sounds strange to you. But this Word or this message, literally, is really. What sets Christianity apart from every other religion and philosophy and ideology and tool that you could ever get behind or believe in. For at its center, this word is what declares Christianity to be true and good news. This message, it's actually ranked as one of first importance. Because when you look at what this announcement or this word or this message is, it declares to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And you could say, well, that's great, and that sounds like an interesting story, but why is that of first importance? Because it's not just a historical fact, though it is, it's what was the purpose of that historical fact, that this message becomes absolutely paramount. This same Word of God that not only tells us who Jesus is and what he has done, it tells us something even more specifically. It tells us that this Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection is of utmost importance because this Christ is the only mediator between God and men. Now you're probably asking, why do I need a mediator? What's so important about me having a mediator between this God. Well, if you continue to read through his word, you will find that this book, these scriptures also reveal that this God is creator. And he created every single one of us in his image for his glory and for his great purposes. But as the story unravels very literally, you find that even though we've been created in his image, We rebel against that very created design, and we exalt ourselves. We exalt our own emotions. We exalt our own feelings and passions, our own invention of our own ideas. And we say, you might be the creator, but I am the God. And the scripture says that that is sin, that that very act is treason against God and because this sin is against a holy god who is only does what is righteous and always does what is good that act of rebellion deserves god's righteous wrath and so suddenly the idea of a mediator begins to make a little more sense because we might even know that we're sinful We might even know that our world is broken. We might even be convinced that things ought to be different, but we are unable to do anything about it. That is why this message is of utmost importance, because God sent His Son to be the mediator, to cover our sin, to atone for our sin, so that God's wrath against sin is poured out upon Christ. That's what that cross was about, judgment, the wrath of God, And not only to atone for our sin, but then to secure our acceptance with God. The way that we are right with God, the way that this world is put back together, is when we, the image bearers, rightly reflect this God again. And that is done through the work of Christ. Oh, it would not be right for us to leave the word of God. It would not be right for us to forsake the message that will put all of this back together. The very announcement of what God is doing. That is why Christians hold dearly to this word. That's why this priority is here. It's worth noting that the ministry of God's word has always been a priority in the calling out and the strengthening of God's people. Meaning, God's word has always been central in the creating And the cultivating of the church. The people of God have always been formed and gathered by God's word. Is it any wonder then that this is exactly the pattern that the Apostle Paul lays out in Ephesians 4? As he reminds us saying that he, God, has given the apostles, the prophets, pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And what do prophets and evangelists and pastor-teachers all share in common? Well, they've all been commissioned by Christ to lead through their ministry of the Word. Now, each one, apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, they serve at their post in varying times in redemptive history, but, but all are unified by the means by which God's word is that which ministers to God's people to strengthen his body. And what do we find is in Paul's letter to Timothy What is the very hinge verse that that entire epistle swings upon. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, "I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of truth. I'm writing so that you would know how to do this thing called church. What is it? Who does she belong to? What is its purpose? How is it organized? And what do you find at the very center of chapter 3? The qualifications for elders and for deacons. The Second London Confession summarizes the teaching of Scripture in this way in chapter 26. A local church gathered and fully organized according to the mind of Christ, remember that, consists of officers and members. The officers appointed by Christ are overseers, or elders, and deacons. Sounds like Paul, 1 Timothy. It goes on in chapter 26, paragraph 10. The work of pastors is to give constant attention to the service of Christ in his churches, in the ministry of the word and prayer. They're to watch over the souls of the church members as those who must give an account to Christ. The solution that the apostles stand up is to delegate and to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We will be devoted to prayer. Why is that important? Because I think prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence upon God. And how fitting it is for his ministers to be devoted to such a thing as it reminds pastors that the effectiveness of their labors is not their eloquence. It's not their pragmatic strategy. It's not their academic reasoning and their ability to communicate unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. So these are men who lead by example, say we're gonna be devoted to prayer. And we're also gonna be devoted to the word. God's revelation to us and to, and his really, his ordained means to call and to reshape and to direct and to nourish the people comes through the ministry of this word. So what we have roughed out here in charcoal sketch in Acts 6 and then further refined in 1 Timothy and Titus is essentially a job description for pastors and for deacons. Essentially, whatever would pull elders away from this priority of the ministry of the word demands the help of others and that help is to be organized and overseen by these deacons. So what we can say then is that the concern of the apostles here in Acts chapter six ought to be the concern of every biblically faithful church. A dedication to the ministry of God's word as it guides and nourishes and strengthens her, and a dedication to the care of its members ensuring that not even the the least among us is going to be overlooked. A dedication to the ministry of the word and the care of her members. There's this complaint. There's the concern of the apostle. But let's close by looking at what we're told here in verse 7, the continued increase of the word. Luke records that the word of God continued to increase and that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now you might notice that the word increase there, really serves as the bookends to this passage, doesn't it? Remember back to verse 1, what was happening? The disciples were increasing in number. And the other bookend, what's happening? Ah, well here it is again. The word of God is continuing to increase and more conversions, more discipleship is happening. It's the bookends of this whole narrative in these seven verses. The word of God continues to grow and increase in the sense that its influence extends and the number of disciples increases. Now, as I hear that, I can't help but hearing an echo of Matthew 28 as Christ commissioned his followers to make disciples, including Teaching them to attend to all that he has commanded. And what do we see here? More disciples, more people turning from sin, from dead religion, more people embracing Christ as the only name given among men by which we must be saved. We see obedient priests. That's so great that the Holy Spirit, through Luke, records that. The priests. The very men who would have been before the temple of God have their eyes open to see the very sacrifices that are made. The very utensils that are before them. They point to this Christ. What I'm doing, what I've been touching and what I've been saying and what I've been involved in. All of this points to this Lord Jesus Christ. And they became obedient to the faith. As we wade a little bit further into the book of Acts, we find really this is just another summary statement of Luke that he does throughout the entire book that serves as a reminder and an underscore of the repeated emphasis of the first six chapters. The word of God will not be hindered. In scripture, the word of God is shown to be this vital force within the world. As it reaches into people's lives, it transforms homes and cities and circumstances according to God's will. Remember Isaiah 55. My word will accomplish its purpose for that which I send it. And then you probably begin to think of Romans 1.16, the gospel. It's the power of God and a salvation. God's word being central. Don't miss the pattern that Luke lays out here. The word of God increases, and as the word of God increases, so does the church. This means that the word of God creates the church. She's a creature of the word. And within the context here of Acts 6, Luke testifies that the very reason this church grows is because it's organized itself according to the mind of Christ. Remember the book ends. Number of disciples is increasing. We have problems. We have complaints. Apostles, solution. Seven men so chosen to serve and the word of God continued to increase, and disciples were made. What happens in between those two points of increase is that the church of God is organized according to the mind of Christ. Therefore, if Veritas Church longs for disciples to be made, and more people to become obedient to the faith, that the word of God might increase even more, then you ought to be thinking about church polity. Did you think that was what I was going to say? Polity? Amen. Polity is just this word that means organization. Not in a dead or dry sense, but just as a cell is organized. Just as a creator would design his creation. How is it to be put together? How is it to function? The prescribed pattern that scripture lays out for the organization and the function of a local church, it is going to shape the fruitfulness of that church. If you are a covenant member of this church, you ought to have a vested interest in the health and the focus and the identification of her elders, her deacons, and her members so that everything is organized and put in place? No, so that the word of God might increase and that the glory of Christ might continue to spread. Because if we want to see disciples made and churches strengthened in Sacramento and Placer County and beyond, it is going to come through our commitment to biblical faithfulness and specifically biblical polity. Pray then that God would raise up more deacons, that God would raise up more elders, that God would raise up more covenant members who get this and who long for the fame of Christ's name to be spread. Polity matters, brothers and sisters, because the church is God's means to reach the world. We're it. Not plan B. By God's very design. Our longing for healthy churches is not simply so that our lives might be made easier, free of the the pains or the headaches or the embarrassment that comes from dysfunctional churches. I prefer healthy churches because they make my life better. That's not our motive for healthy churches. Because she is the very means by which God has chosen to display the glory of Christ. The health of the church directly tied to the manifestation of the glory of God. He has designed to be his church, to be that vessel which announces and carries and displays his glory within a sinful world. Yes, brothers and sisters, the church is built for such opposition. We can be confident that she is a sound She's a seaworthy craft that's been designed by God to endure every wind and wave of doctrine by human cunning and deceitful schemes. She was designed for this. Because God's church is a creation of his own word, she will endure the opposition from without and even any sort of conflict from within. Therefore, my message is simple. Take courage. Be confident in the grand designer who has designed his church. And the days that we are living in, they may be filled with absolute madness. And the looming shadows of potential religious persecution may be growing bigger. But look at your Bible. And what do you see woven alongside very same circumstances? What I read is that the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. We can take confidence in what God has designed and what God has promised. That's why we often love to sing and remind ourselves how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than, he, than what he has said to you, to whom Jesus, whom refuge have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, the Lord says. O oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. That's the battle hymn of the church. So let's look to him and give thanks to him and plead for his continued work. Father, we thank you that you have committed us to your son and that you have bound us to him eternally by the merits of his work and by the goodness of your grace and by the ministry of your own spirit. Father, we take great comfort. And Lord, we find our confidence greatly strengthened when we remember that what We are committing ourselves to, in various local churches, as not just some pragmatic organization, but a very creature of your design. And you are a good designer. You are faithful to your promise. So we trust that you will endure, cause your church to endure, and we plead and we ask, Lord, do more. Strengthen the churches in our area. Continue to raise up more elders and deacons and healthy church members, that your name might be spread and that your glory might be displayed in your church, that you might bring in all that Christ has given himself for, all the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Do this, we pray, for not simply our good, but also for your great glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.